Hello and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I'm Tim Moore, your host for this program and the Senior Evangelist of Lamb and Lion Ministries. I'm joined by Nathan Jones, my co-host and our Internet Evangelist. We're returning to our Jesus in the Old Testament series and moving into a trilogy of books that deal with the Jewish exile in Babylon and the return to the Promised Land. After Assyria conquered Israel and Babylon decimated Judah, Babylon was in turn defeated by the Medes and Persians. Seventy years later, Cyrus was king of the Persians. Ezra, a Jewish scribe and priest, recorded in the first verse of his book that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The great king made a decree saying, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. We know that Cyrus lived in the 5th century B.C., so this book can be dated around 440 B.C. Ezra's recognition that the Lord had orchestrated all the events that led to the sons of Israel returning to land is summarized in our key verse for this week, Ezra 6, 21-22. Ezra documents the challenges and victories realized by the Jews who returned from exile. More important than all that, it documents that God keeps His promises. Our guest today is a special friend to Lamb and Lion Ministries. Bob Russell was the lead pastor of one of the largest churches in the Promised Land, Kentucky. Under his leadership and with the clear guiding of the Holy Spirit, Southeast Christian Church grew into a Christ-centered megachurch. Bob also served as mentor as Dave Reagan and I worked through our own transition process here over the past few years. His wisdom and discernment have been a great blessing to me personally. Bob, we're so glad you could join us today. Well, thank you, Tim, and I'm really, really thankful that your transition went so well. Uh, uh, you spoke recently at a church near my home, and I wasn't able to be there, but I heard really positive feedback uh, about the effectiveness of that weekend. You know, in transitions in a track meet, if the passing of the baton is handled correctly, there's actually a step gained in the race because the one is reaching back and the other is reaching forward. And I anticipate yeah, the transition between you and David Reagan has been so smooth that you're actually gaining a step in the race. And that speaks well of David's uh, humility and wisdom, speaks well of your ability and, and your humility as well. But I'm really pleased at how, how well it's going. Well, I certainly appreciate your guidance and your, uh, as I said, mentoring. People may not know that you wrote the book because after your own successful transition there at Southeast Christian, you wrote a book called Transition Plan, and it was a godsend to us. And obviously, I also give complete credit to the Lord Himself who guided us through this process, the wonderful staff here at Lamb and Lion Ministries. But your, uh, your wisdom that you were willing to share has been a godsend, and I know it's impacted many other ministries as well. Well, thank you. I, there are a lot of books on transition, but I've had some people tell me that that book, Transition Plan, has been a help to them. Thanks. It certainly has. Well, I don't think most people realize, Bob, that you were my pastor, you and Dave Stone, for many years when I served at Southeast Christian Church for six years. And so it's really fantastic. The last 15 years that I've been here at Lamb and Lion Ministries, our paths keep intertwining, and you continue to be my pastor and mentor over the years. So thank you for that. Well, that's kind of you, Nathan. I, uh, you made a real contribution to our church and everybody appreciated and liked you. Uh, when I think of you, I think of a survey that the Carnegie Institute did years ago of several thousand people they deemed successful in life. And they finally drew the conclusion that success in life is 15% 
technology and 85% personality. <laughs> you know, 15% knowing how to do it, but 85% relating to people. And that's true in almost every field. And one of the gifts that you have is that you relate so well to people and you have a high likability factor and you are a genuine uh, blessing to our church. Thank you. Like I said, you're always the mentor. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Well, let's turn our attention to the book of Ezra. And obviously he establishes the, this scribe and priest of Israel early in his book that Cyrus, the king of Persia, did not come out of nowhere, but he came to an awareness of God's providence on his own. And that was because the Holy Spirit led him and motivated him to issue a decree that the Jews should be allowed to return to Israel for the purpose of rebuilding their temple. Well, that's an amazing story of how God can use even pagan kings to accomplish his will in the uh, the Jews were taken captive by the Babylonians, and they were in Babylon and uh, settled in there and were a blessing to the Babylonian culture. But then uh, Cyrus and the Persians conquered Babylon, and Cyrus starts looking around, and he can't understand why the Jews have been so persecuted, and he feels moved to release them and to go back to Jerusalem if they want to. You know, the Bible says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he, he wants to. And that's an example of how God can use uh, pagan rulers to accomplish his will. All the more reason why uh, we ought to be praying for those in authority. But we look back on the history of Israel more recently, and God used uh, uh, President Truman to endorse Israel when they re uh, returned and became a nation. And I think uh, as a uh, hedonistic and, and pagan as Donald Trump has been, God used him to appoint some conservative judges and, and restrict abortion. So we ought to be really praying that God continues to use people, even though they may not, uh, the, their rulership may not align with our values. Well, it looks like in Ezra chapter one through six, we have Zerubbabel returning to rebuild the temple. Then chapter seven through 10, we get into Ezra's ministry and Ezra might've even written Nehemiah and Nehemiah built the walls. And each time these men came back leading a remnant of Israel or tribe of Judah specifically back to the land, I'd seen they had royal protection. They had a royal degree to do it. They had the money and funds coming from the government yet again and again, the people who had remained in that land continued to fight back against them and, and, uh, and stop their work. And not uh, they had adversaries all over the place. Well, what lessons do you think we can learn from continuing to do the work in the face of adversity? Yeah, sometimes people think if uh, they're doing God's will, everything is going to go smoothly. And that's not true. I mean, Ezra was obviously doing God's will. The people who went back to rebuild the temple were doing God's will but they had a number of setbacks and a number of times people opposed them. I knew that was, uh, I know that was true in my ministry. Uh, we took a strong stand for biblical values and the local newspaper was uh, a lot more liberal than we were. And we were a pretty high profile church in our area. As a result, uh, we were often attacked by the local media and criticized. And sometimes uh, there were demonstrations outside. And if we allow those kinds of things to stop us, uh, the work of God isn't going to continue. But you know what, Nathan? Uh, opposition doesn't just come from without. Sometimes opposition comes from within. Uh, people disagree with the stance that we take inside the church. 
and uh, there are going to be times when uh, we have to continue to stand firm on God's word, even though it may alienate some people within the body of Christ. That is very true. And I know a lot of people when they read the Old Testament, especially these books dealing with the, uh, the exile period, they kind of get bogged down in the various kingdoms. We know that the, the Babylonians came to take away the people of Judah. Of course, the Assyrians had already conquered northern Israel. And so the, the Jewish people's captivity period began in about 7, 7, or 722 B.C. But after that, uh, they were indwelling, as you said, in Babylon. And some of them didn't even want to return. But this idea of the evil presence and, and, and I guess, imposition of Babylon on the Jewish people is a theme that runs all the way through into Revelation. So we know that, again, the Jewish people became assimilated, so many of them, into the Babylonian culture. Uh, some held out. We'll talk about Daniel here in several weeks. But others didn't have any motivation to return to the Holy Land. And so there was still a large contingent of Jewish people living in Iraq, what is modern-day Babylon, even up to the time of Saddam Hussein. What lesson can we learn about the influence of the pagan into Christian culture today uh, as it points to even what Revelation tells us we should be anticipating with the resurgence of Babylon? Well, it's hard for me to determine whether everybody should have gone back to Jerusalem or not. You know, when, when they settled in Babylon, God had instructed them through the prophet to settle in and be a blessing to the culture. Just like Joseph was a blessing to the household of Potiphar and then the household of Pharaoh, that God's people should be a blessing in the culture. And, and a number of people settled in and maybe they were supposed to remain there. Uh, I think about Jesus calling uh, Peter and John and the disciples leave their nets and follow him. And they left their occupation and followed Jesus. And then the demon possessed man who had been cleansed of his demon said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, no, you go back home and stay where you are and be of influence there. Tell how the great things God is doing for you. And maybe some of those people sh should have remained in Babylon, but they're not going to be of any influence if they're not distinctive. And it is a, a dangerous thing to, to live in the culture and not be influenced by the culture because the culture is dangerous. I think about how kids in school today are just uh, bombarded with propaganda that is uh, against the Christian worldview. Uh, I, I hear kids just automatically uh, using terminology that endorses uh, evolution, for example. Uh, Thomas some kids the other day about an alligator and he said, Oh man, that's prehistoric. That's one of the, that goes back a lot longer than than everything else. No, God created them at the same time He created other animals. But we we get absorbed in the philosophy of the age, and the the, the prince of darkness is able to influence uh, young people, especially in this culture. And adults have the same problem. Uh, I, I think about how easily we become absorbed in the uh, the drinking culture and the drug culture and things that were evil years ago are now considered okay, even among people in the church. Bob, why do you feel that's the case? Why is it so easy to get indoctrinated into pagan culture that our churches tend to slip from their doctrinally sound biblical positions to usually something very watered down and almost meaningless? 
Well, there's a phrase in scripture that says that they wanted to please men more than God. And the approval of people uh, is so important to many of us. And if the, if the culture is going to condemn us, I, I think if I could list three fears that people have there, their fear of death and the fear of disapproval would be one of those, those top three. And the fear of criticism of the culture, being rejected by the culture. And so we, first of all, get silent, and then we begin to endorse it. And then we can begin to participate in it ourselves. And it, it, the Bible calls us to come out and be separate. I don't think that means odd or weird, but there has to be a, a strong stand taken. Let me tell you this little story. Uh, when I was a nine years old, I played Little League Baseball. And I came home excited one day and said, Mom and Dad, our, our, our team is going to go see the Cleveland Indians play uh, in, in a couple of weeks. All we got to do is wear a uniform and take a sack lunch. We get in to see a ball game free. I've always wanted to see a Major League Baseball game. Well, they rejoiced with me until they looked and said, hey, that's Sunday. We, we go to church on Sunday. And I said, well, I always go to church. Can't I just once go to the ball game? And they said, no, church is more important. And that Sunday morning, my dad drove right by where the kids are getting on the bus, going to the ball game, and he beeped the horn and waved on the way to church. I dove down the back seat. I didn't want my friends <laughs> to think I was a, a religious nut or something. But my, my parents taught me in that lesson that not only is church important, but that we are to be different. We're to be distinctive. And sometimes you have to stand against the culture. I appreciate your words about the prophet telling the people, even in Babylon, to, to live and to prosper and to be a blessing. That, of course, is in Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll talk about Jeremiah down the road. We are not following chronologically every book, but in the order they're presented in Scripture. So we will get to that. But, you know, here in just the last couple of years, Bob, our society has been consumed by fear, oftentimes, of an unseen virus. And eventually we know that that virus will play itself out just like all the other pestilences that have come in, in recent human history have. But surveys indicate, and, and we could cite the Barna survey, I know that you're familiar with, that uh, our culture is growing less and less biblically literate, and even those who would claim faith in Christ are not holding to a consistent biblical ideology. In other words, they don't really align with biblical principles when you ask them specific questions. And so how alarmed should Christians be, and how can parents and grandparents be a positive influence on their children when the culture is driving so hard in a, an opposite direction? Yeah. Well, first of all, example is the most important. Uh, I am so blessed myself to have been raised by Christian parents who their, their language was pure, their, their life was consistent, and their testimony was uh, bold. And that example uh, left an indelible impression on me. But I, I think both the home and the church need to make a concerted effort to teach people the Bible. You know, I grew up going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, two-week revival meeting, vacation Bible school. Every time the doors were open, we were there. And we've cut back on those services, the place where people are just going one hour on Sunday morning and maybe twice a month. So the parents have to be sharp enough to realize they can't trust the church to teach the Bible to their kids. And from the time little kids are born, parents need to start reading the Bible every night to their kids, 
teaching them the Bible. You know, Moses talked about write them on the door frames of your houses and, and talk about them when you walk along the way. And the church, uh, Tim and Nathan, the church has got to make a more concerted effort to teach people the Bible. And uh, uh, small groups need to be more than discussion groups. They need to be Bible study groups. And that's why I think I, I encourage preachers to make most of their preaching expository preaching so that they're getting as much Bible into their people as they possibly can. There are a lot of young preachers who think that doctrine doesn't matter anymore. It's just, we're gonna follow Jesus. But the two go hand in hand. The Bible says, watch your life and your doctrine carefully. David said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. And to withstand the pressure of this culture, we've gotta have God's word uh, deep in our, in, in our in our hearts to the point it comes out of our pores and it's second nature to us. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he quoted scripture. And uh, we, as a church and as families, we've got to be more intentional about teaching people the Bible and discipling them. Well, it's interesting that in the, as Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple, the first half of Ezra, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of the time, and they continued dealing with the people that were dejected in their mission. They, they'd been given a mission to rebuild the temple, but they kind of grew apathetic and lazy, and the, the prophets would come in and kind of whip them into shape, and the people that would then become penitent. They'd turn to the Lord. They'd ask for forgiveness, not of their own sins, but for their national sins. Well, do you see that this is a pattern in the Old Testament where the Lord has to discipline the people, they repent, and then he re-energizes and blesses them and they can move forward in their mission? It's the same cycle we go through today. Okay. Uh, Ezra came back after the temple was basically rebuilt, but he came to, to preach and to teach scripture and to motivate the people to repent and to turn from their wicked ways. And when he came into Jerusalem, kind of like Jesus, he, he saw the conditions of the, the culture and he wept and he was appalled at what he saw and called people to repent. We hear a lot of talk today about the need for revival in America. And I agree, if America is gonna be spared, it's gonna be the result of a spiritual awakening. So a lot of people are praying intensely for revival in America, but there is a sense in which the, the, the need isn't prayer, the need is repentance. The, the, the need is to say, hey, we have sinned. We have been absorbed by this culture. We're using the same language. We're, we're adopting the, 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 this world's view. We're, we're, we're in, involved in divorce and the same kind of uh, immoral behavior and, and pornography. And we're absorbed into this world and we need to come to repent, repentance. You know, when Jesus came, uh, his first words were repent and, and believe, the, believe the gospel. And I think maybe, uh, maybe we've been shouting grace and whispering repentance in, in the church. and We need to call people back to, hey, repent and believe the gospel. And that could be very painful. I mean, there's this really strange story in Ezra where Ezra tells the people who have married foreign wives, hey, this is in violation of God's law. You can't do that. You need to divorce your wives and send your children away. And sometimes uh, repentance could be very painful, wouldn't you say? Yeah. John Stott once said that uh, repentance is prickly. <laughs> and, and so uh, preachers avoid talking about repentance because it disturbs people. But Ezra was uh, a preacher, a teacher, and he was tough. 
uh, he called the people to an assembly. And if I recall, he, he said, now, if you don't come to the assembly, you're going to lose your property rights. <laughs> Every, everybody showed up. And uh, then he discovered that uh, a number of people had intermarried with foreign wives. And the, the horrible thing about that is that they would absorb their beliefs in false gods and their immoral practices. And there are about a hundred of them who had intermarried with foreign wives. And Ezra, you would expect him to say, well, we can't unscramble eggs. You guys just repent. He said, no, I want you to put aside your wives and your children and come back and be pure. And I don't think that was uh, a model that is supposed to be followed today. If you uh, to applied in the church to tell people to forsake their wives that they've married who aren't Christian, but it just shows you that repentance uh, is a serious matter. And God is, God calls us to come out of darkness into light. He, he calls us to come out of exile into freedom. And, and the church, in, in my opinion, the church of the future that's going to make the most impact is not going to be the seeker-friendly church. I, I think one of the things that the pandemic has taught us that, that the, the, the church has been uh, weak and inept, and we've lost a lot of people because there's not enough depth there. I think the church of the future is going to be a distinctive church, a church that is a contrast to the world, and that people can say, hey, if I'm going to be a part of that, I've got to come out of darkness into light. And I, I try to challenge young people, young preachers, to, to, to take a strong stand, and let's be a distinctive people. Let's be a, a people who are called out of exile, and the world can see the contrast. Well, it's interesting. Ezra is a person who leads a remnant back to worship God. So I, we, in this series of Jesus in the Old Testament, we're looking for Christophanies, uh, pre-incarnate Jesus appearances, types and symbols. Ezra is clearly a, a type of Jesus Christ because he leads the people to repentance. Would you see any other types or symbols that point to Jesus in the book of Ezra? Well, there are a lot of symbols in the Old Testament. And Ezra coming back to call people to repentance, bring them back to God is like Jesus. But Ezra weeps over Jerusalem and he sees the, uh, the, the uh, sin and the degradation and uh, wants to call, call them back. And Ezra also, the whole book reminds us that, that God is true to his promises, that he promised Abraham that he would bless those who blessed him. He'd be a blessing to the world. And then he promised through Moses, if they obeyed, they would, uh, uh, they would be blessed. But if they strayed, Deuteronomy tells us if they strayed, they would be taken into captivity. That's exactly what happened. But God preserved a remnant. And Ezra works with a remnant of people. And one of the most telling examples of or types of Jesus is that the Lord still works with a remnant. Many are called, but few are chosen. And uh, God blessed the, Ezra brings back about, oh, if you do the counties, about 5,000 people that come out of exile. But they come back and, and, uh, <laughs> and those people stray. That, that's a picture of the church. Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, they, they live in, they build houses of luxury and they neglect the the uh, the temple of God, and 
that they're called back to the priorities. And what a picture of, of the church. The church compromises with the world and then they're called back to repentance. And uh, I, I think that's our role today, to, to be modern Ezra's or to be like Christ and, and ask people to, to come out from among them and, and, and be separate and be distinctive. Well, Bob, you obviously have been distinctive throughout your your ministry, and you continue to minister still today. I talked about you being a mentor to us here at Lamb and Lion Ministries, but really you are a mentor by calling even now in your role as a pastor to pastors. So tell us a little bit about Bob Russell Ministries and how our viewers can be in prayer for you and for the outreach you have to bless other younger pastors. Well, I retired in 2006 from after 40-year ministry. And I didn't retire, so I could just play golf every day, though I do <laughs> play golf. Uh, I, I wanted to have another chapter in my life where I could be influential on young preachers. I have a real heart for preachers because it is a difficult calling, uh, difficult occupation, wonderful calling, but a difficult occupation because uh, uh, you add the, the pandemic and the culture today, and it's getting tougher and tougher. So I wanted to be an encourager to preachers. And one of the ways I do that is uh, uh, about eight times a year, I conduct a retreat I call a time of refreshing. And uh, uh, we bring in, I limit it to eight pastors because I want there to be interaction. And we call them for three and a half days and we do study, we, we do interaction, we, we take time to play. And it's just the spiritual R&R for preachers. And I've done over a hundred of those retreats. And if you'd have told me when I retired that I would do a hundred retreats and it would never get old for me, I would have never believed that. But it's kind of my sweet spot. And the guys who come will say, man, I'm, I'm ready to go back in, in the ministry. I'm, I'm refreshed and revived. So that's been very rewarding for me. And I, I, I travel and speak and I do a lot of counseling and consulting with, with preachers and churches. Well, you certainly have been, again, a blessing to us. But I look forward to crossing paths with you back home at some point. And uh, again, we are so grateful that you could join us today. Thanks, Tim and Nathan. Boy, continue to do the great work you're doing. We, we love what you're doing. Thank you, brother. Godspeed. Bob Russell captured so many truths today. Even when we grow disappointed with the world around us and even with the shortcomings in fellow believers or church, we can rely on God because He keeps every promise. And although we haven't focused on the prophet Jeremiah yet, Ezra records that in order to fulfill the word of the Lord delivered through Jeremiah, the Holy Spirit stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. God's word is true and His promises are yes and amen, even if they involve the actions of a pagan king. The assurance that truth offers us should make us sing out like the visionaries who returned to Israel with Zerubbabel. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord, they sang, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. The promise that they would return from exile originated with God. The idea for a return was initiated by God, and the provision, and the protection, and the perseverance to see the project completed was all to God's credit. You might say He was the author and perfecter, just as Jesus is for our faith. The resource we're offering today focuses on God's eternal promises to Israel. It's the book, The Jewish People Rejected or Beloved by our founder, Dr. David Reagan. For a gift of $20 or more, and that includes shipping, we'll happily send you a copy of this powerful book. In our next episode, we'll continue the account of the Jews returned from exile in Babylon. Nehemiah will tell how they overcame adversity to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Read ahead and look for Jesus on every page.
Until next week, this is Tim Moore. And Nathan Jones saying, look up, be watchful, for the Lord who keeps all of His promises is drawing near. Thank you.